This week on the Backtable Podcast. The lines between locums and permanent, the lines between W-2 and 1099, these are very blurred lines. What's happening in the locums market is really just a reflection of what is happening in the overall interventional radiology market. And I think that the hotness of the, the locums market is a reflection of changing structure within the way that interventional radiology has been practiced right now. I can't help but wonder if the amount that's being paid for locums coverage and interventional radiology may force some of the powerful entities that are involved in healthcare to go advocate for high reimbursement for some of the things that we do that we know are just under reimbursed. I can't help but wonder if uh, something like that could happen. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but boy, if it does happen, I'm going to claim that I said it first here on this podcast. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. At Medtronic, they take deep venous disease and patients' quality of life seriously. That's why they're committed to help you treat patients with the Abre Venous Self-Expanding Stent System. Risks include pain, myocardial infarction, pulmonary embolism, and restenosis of stented segment. Learn more at www.medtronic.com backslash Venus. Now, back to the episode. This is Shemit Desai, your guest host for the week. As a reminder from prior episodes I've been a guest on, I'm an interventional radiologist in Chicago. I'm very excited to introduce our special guests, Kev- Kavi Devalopoli and Vishal Kadakia. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Today, we're going to discuss a really hot topic, uh, one that listeners have been asking for for a while, and that's really relevant to discussions in the job market and personal and professional satisfaction. We're going to talk about different approaches to locums work in the world of interventional radiology. Before we jump in, as a quick disclaimer, although it's not going to be the main focus of this talk, we will be discussing at times the financial side of locums work, including navigating taxes and reimbursement. To be clear, We are not tax experts or financial advisors. Please seek your own tax experts and financial advisors for your own personal advice. We just want to talk a bit about personal experiences, lessons learned, and what makes certain opportunities feel like more than being a hired gun. Hopefully, the audience finds this discussion helpful. So if you're interested, listen on. So welcome, guys. Uh, Great to see you guys in person. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Really appreciate it. I'm excited. Let's do some intros. Um, Can you guys uh, talk about your training and how you got into the field of interventional radiology? Uh, Let's let's start with you, Covey. Sure. Again, my name is Covey Davalopoli. Proud to say I'm a full-time locums interventional radiologist. Uh, Excited to be on the podcast. Uh, Grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I did my medical training at Case Western Reserve University. I really didn't know um, that I'd end up as an interventional radiologist. It kind of happened somewhat by chance at the end of my third year of medical school rotations, I thought I'd be a psychiatrist actually. And I, I met a uh, neurointerventional radiologist who pretty much blew my mind um, seeing what he was able to do in terms of treating strokes and aneurysms. And it's very progressive practicing in a very clinically oriented fashion, talking over 10 years ago. And I just love what he was doing. Everything from taking care of patients, seeing them in follow-up, reading imaging, doing amazing cases pretty much captivated my attention. And I, I decided at that point, my future is going to be in image guided procedures. So I ended up um, matching into radiology, did my training at UCSF for diagnostic radiology residency. And then I went to University of North Carolina for my fellowship training in um, IR. 
I've had an interesting early start to my career. I've been part of a traditional IRDR private practice um, at a local community hospital in Durham, North Carolina for about two years. And then shortly around the time of the start of the pandemic, I actually left to help start a new OBL with an interventional cardiologist in the area. That was actually a great experience, um, but I ended up moving on from that position about nine months ago, and now I'm actually doing full-time locums work. And I have an interesting practice where I, I do a mix of hospital and OBL work across a couple different states. I'm in Minnesota, um, primarily for hospital work. And as I record this right now, I'm actually in South Florida doing some OBL work. And then in addition to all of this, I do some teleradiology on the side, um, both while I'm on the road and uh, for the VA uh, locally in Durham, North Carolina. That's super interesting. I can't wait to get into that a little further with you, Kavi. Uh, Vishal, this is your first time on Backtable. Can you introduce yourself as well? Yeah, so my name is uh, Vishal Kadakia. I'm uh, also a full-time locums interventional radiologist. Uh, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, originally born and raised. I did my uh, medical school training uh, and undergrad, incidentally, in Chicago. Uh, then I did my surgical internship in New York City at Montefiore Hospital. I went back home from my residency in Oklahoma uh, for radiology, and, uh, and then I did my fellowship at Hopkins. I graduated in 2019. I sort of stumbled into radiology, I would say. I was pretty uh, gung-ho thinking about doing some of the surgical disciplines, uh, was going to do orthopedic surgery, actually didn't match, and then found my way into uh, radiology. Of course, once I knew I was going into radiology, I said, you know what, uh, I definitely want to do procedures. And uh, boy, I tell you, I've gotten real lucky. This field is getting very, very hot. And uh, I definitely got in at the ground floor, I would say. Uh, in terms of how I got into full-time locums work, I was going to start a practice uh, with a friend of mine who's a urologist in Atlanta. They're a pretty burgeoning group of uh, urologists. Uh, they wanted to sort of expand into other fields, uh, interventional being top on their list. Uh, so I looked into that my fellowship year. We were ready to go. And then we ended up putting that project on hold for about a year, right as I was graduating from fellowship. So that was kind of scary, uh, not really having a job. So I started doing some locums work. I thought I would just do it for about a year uh, and then move forward with the Atlanta project. And then the uh, COVID pandemic hit, and we can talk all about uh, what that means for locums doctors later in the podcast. But uh, long story short, I've been doing it now for uh, almost three years uh, and I haven't looked back. Super interesting, guys. Uh, you guys are doing the whole gamut of locums here. Uh, can't wait to get into this a little bit. Um, a little bit about my background. Um, I'm full-time employed here in Chicago. I was uh, Northwestern trained both for uh, residency and for fellowship. I, I moved around a bit um, at a couple employed jobs, both due to uh, my job satisfaction and my wife's training, but I'm back here in Chicago and uh, I do quite a bit of locums on the side, um, both within my own uh, national practice as well as as uh, 1099 side gigs. We'll get into a bit about what that entails a bit later in the podcast, but I just wanted to open this up with what is locums, you know, to, to trainees and for people who don't really know much outside of the traditional academic practice. Uh, Vishal, you want to just go over what locums is? Yeah, I mean, locums has been around for quite a while in multiple disciplines. Uh, I think of locums as, you know, really anything where you're providing a service to a client that may not be permanent or uh, may not be fixed. Uh, you're supposed to be pretty flexible. So I, I think the definition for locums is changing. But in general, you're a, a person coming in to cover a service line for some entity. I'm sure Kavi uh, uh, can talk a little bit more about the outpatient world. I think he's got a lot of experience in that. For me, basically, there are three types of clients. You've got uh, a private practice, um, you've got the hospital, and you've got maybe a corporate slash private equity uh, group. Those are the basically the three types of clients that I have. I would say probably about 
40% of my work is corporate slash private equity. So we're talking about some of the national organizations. Uh, Shamath, I think you know about those guys. Uh, and then private practice is, you know, any type of private practice around the country, a group of radiologists uh, who for a variety of reasons may need some coverage. And then on occasion, I'd say maybe about 10, 20% of my work is uh, directly with the hospital where the hospital does not have a service contract with either a big corporate entity or a private practice and directly employs its radiologists or its interventional radiologists. So that's what I have seen from the locums world. Uh, I, like I said earlier, I started out just doing this um, really just in Indiana and Oklahoma. And now I'm licensed in nine states, uh, for 32 hospitals at this point. Uh, and I've seen a good, good number of different ways of practicing or interventional radiology, except for the outpatient world, which I'm actually super excited to hear Kavi talk more about. Yeah, that, that, well, that's interesting. You know, um, Vishal, I, I want to ask you, um, do you find that this is mostly in big cities or are you always subjected to, you know, heading out and, and driving five hours outside of the, you know, the nearest airport? How, how's this been working out for you geographically? Yeah. So, you know, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I'm licensed in nine states, nothing west of my home state, Oklahoma. So I've always kept east of there. I, I can't say the, the Mississippi because Oklahoma is on the other side, but really, you know, I don't go that far west. And uh, the large majority of my clients, except for actually I'm thinking now, really just one of my clients has been in a major metropolitan area. The rest of my clients have been um, mid-sized cities and some smaller communities where uh, recruiting has been a significant challenge. I've only done one one or maybe two contracts in a large city. But, you know, I've been doing this for three years and I've watched the market change a lot. When I first started doing this, Locums was pretty hot uh, because there was a lot of private equity money coming into the field in general and, and, and definitely a shortage, which I think we're going to talk about a little later in the podcast. Now, though, I'm definitely seeing even large markets, uh, you know, just blasting advertisements, looking for anyone to help them cover their needs. Uh, I don't know what you guys are seeing, uh, but I'm seeing even larger markets now, which I think typically have not been that reliant on uh, locums coverage now, definitely in need of, of locums coverage. Interesting. Yeah. Covey, uh, do, do you want, do you want to kind of piggyback on that and then also talk about the, the outpatient world, which uh, has a different flavor to it? Yeah, definitely. So I, I, I echo what Vishal says. I, I think, um, you know, in general, the market's very hot and we'll, we'll definitely talk about that. I've had experience now working locums in both small cities and, and big cities across, you know, inpatient and outpatient practices. Um, I think there's so many great opportunities out there. I think, you know, one thing I'd, I'd want to talk about a little bit more is, you know, why would an IR even be interested in locums work, right? And I think there's a couple different reasons, but I, I'm going to kind of reflect on my own path towards locums. Um, you know, I was pretty traditional coming out of training, going into a standard employed uh, position as an associate on a partnership track. I ended up, you know, realizing a little bit more about the business of medicine and understanding that in my local market, at least the way I would like to practice was um, better suited for the outpatient world. That let me lend, um, that set me down a path of uh, going into the OBL and had the uh, experience of helping create a new OBL. Unfortunately, a partnership with an interventional cardiologist uh, didn't work out. So I found myself in a position um, where I had to pretty much either find a new job or go down another path. And I think I've learned from my experience that my dream is to really have my own practice. And I found myself in a position in my life where that just wasn't really feasible. I think uh, a lot of us have spouses who are professionals. And, you know, I have a wife who's a, a trainee in vascular surgery. So I had a two-year window pretty much where, you know, I want to stay busy, um, work on my skills, and uh, just continue practicing to the best of my ability to pretty much line up with her career path. 
And I think in many ways, locums is very ideal for those of us who find ourselves in a transitional period in, in our lives. Um, and that's pretty much what led me down this road. But now that I've been down this road, it's, it's kind of opened up even more opportunities. And I think, I think locums is a viable path. Um, it's really interesting hearing Vishal's path. He's been doing it pretty much since fellowship. And I think in many ways, locums is um, a way for us to take control of our professional lives. Perhaps we're not happy with existing opportunities in, in our local market. Maybe we're not happy with um, not only the finances, but in terms of how practices are set up, um, the types of patients you'd like to treat, cases you'd like to do. And I think there's many opportunities to, um, you know, kind of fulfill a, a need, you know, an itch personally uh, in terms of doing the type of IR you would like to do. Yeah, that's super interesting. And so, so Covey, your, your first job coming out, um, for, for clarification, was that a traditional, more prevalent IRDR combined group, or was this a 100% IR job hospital-based? Yeah, great question. It was a traditional job. I think I was fortunate, at least from my perspective, to practice majority IR. So it constituted about 80% IR, 20% DR. But I think the big thing for me is um, that practice wasn't really set up to have a full longitudinal clinic. And, you know, that's not to say that practices like that can't have longitudinal clinics. I just think, you know, where I was in time with that group and it just just wasn't to be. So I, I personally had some struggles um, establishing that. And that's when I learned about the OBL model. And that's what really led me down that path. Yeah, just to piggyback on that, you know, I, I uh, really think that there's I got into this thinking one thing and it's actually opened up so many more doors than I've ever really even thought about. And I can't help but wonder, and I know we're kind of early in the session and I'm sure we're going to start waxing poetic maybe here a little later in the podcast, but I can't help but wonder if if this is just sort of a natural progression of the changes happening in our field and so many other aspects. Uh, I did uh, forget to mention, since we were talking a little about balance, like I think uh, Covey's had a pretty similar experience to mine. I would say mine's changed a little bit recently. I would say that when I first started doing this out of training, I was doing about 70% IR, 30% DR across all my clients. Um, and I would say now it's almost gotten to 90-10. Uh, I'm really not reading a lot of scans, except for maybe coverage on the weekend where some of my clients want that call coverage, both for IR and DR. But during the weekdays, the number of my clients, the IR work has just gotten so busy. There's just not a lot of time to read scans. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so why would an employer be interested in, in your experience, why is an employer interested in hiring locums versus just, you know, either raising rates for a full-time W-2 employee or, uh, you know, making their own guys take a little more call and, and, and having them do a little less diagnostic radiology in a traditional practice? Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of it gets down to supply and demand. I think that's, you know, one thing that we see. I, I don't think anyone likes taking more call. <laughs> I think, you know, some groups do it. Um, you know, my old group, for instance, um, didn't rely on locums. If uh, we had a shortage in terms of, uh, you know, an IR um, associate or partner who who left, then, you know, we would just kind of uh, band together and just, you know, take it. We would just take extra call. And some groups work that way. Others don't. Um, you know, I can speak to my, my current hospital position right now in Minnesota. I don't think it's reasonable or, or really tenable for, you know, the wonderful IR docs who I work with, two of them who are wonderful people. They work very hard. It's a busy hospital. And I think it's hard to actually absorb that much call. They'd be Q2 in a level one trauma center. And there are certain locations and, um, and not even location dependent really anymore with the current state of the market where it's, it's just hard to hire. I think, you know, the supply demand imbalance is what it is. And I think, 
you know, that's, that's pretty much why we have locums. I think it's a great opportunity. Piggybacking off of that, uh, to me, there are basically three reasons why somebody would want uh, a locums person. Either they just need some vacation coverage uh, or they have enough work, but just not enough work to justify a full-time additional FTE. And then, of course, what Covey's talking about, which is they just can't recruit um, a full-time equivalent uh, interventional radiologist. And I would agree with him, you know, a year ago, I think a lot of my work was the first two, vacation coverage and just not quite enough work to justify that full-on person. But now the large majority of my work is they just can't recruit someone. There's the, the market's too tight. Super cool. So let's shift a little bit to actually working as a locum's IR. Vishal, can you talk a little bit about the, the job expectations in the traditional practice that you've been in, uh, more inpatient-based? Yeah, so I, I can't really talk a whole lot about the outpatient setting. I'm really excited to hear what Kavi has to say about that. But from the inpatient perspective, uh, I basically have two types of clients. Uh, one where uh, I'm just there to fill the role of a regular person who's normally there. Um, and then other clients where it's just a rotating door of locums doctors. And I approach those a little differently. So if it's a place that has a regular doctor or a group of regular doctors, I'm really, really, strictly speaking, just a visitor. Uh, my objective for my client is to make it seem like uh, they were never gone. Um, so I try to mimic their practice patterns within a reason. Of course, if I you know, fundamentally disagree with some of the things they do, then I do things my way as long as it's safe. For example, if you have a liver biopsy, uh, I typically keep my liver biopsies four hours afterwards for observation, but some places I work at do three. So I, I'm pretty flexible on that. Similarly, if I've got uh, a lung biopsy, I typically do a chest radiograph one and three hours afterwards looking for that pneumothorax, but some places I work at, the regular doctors just do one radiograph in two hours. That seems pretty reasonable to me too. So um, I try to say yes to things that they would normally say yes to. So although it's sort of the bane of our existence, if that practice does LPs and places NG tubes, I'll do it because that's what they normally do. Mm -hmm. uh, and then if I'm at a place where it's just a rotating door of locums doctors, there I really try to keep the providers happy and the hospital happy while also simultaneously setting reasonable expectations. I don't want to say yes to something that then somebody a week later is going to say no to. Uh, I think that's just not a reliable practice for the hospital. So uh, I, I sort of tailor how I treat my clients based on whether I'm truly a visitor or if I'm one of many doctors who are constantly rotating through. Similarly, if it's a rotating group of doctors, I try to be flexible. If someone gives me the wrong glove size, I'll just wear those gloves because uh, those techs and nurses have to keep track of, you know, six doctors' preferences. Uh, it doesn't really matter for a short case if I'm I have size off my glove size. Gotcha. So, so you're you're basically a locum's chameleon in a way. I mean, you're Correct. you're adapting to all new techniques. You're adapting to all new materials as yeah. well as I mean, yeah. even potentially glove sizes. Um, yeah. So that that's super interesting in the inpatient world. You know, I mean, as a little anecdote, uh, my first time ever using the Inari Flow Retriever was actually mm -hmm. on a locums gig. So even beyond just some things that you may have done in training, you know, I found locums to be fascinating um, as far as picking up new practice tricks and and mm -hmm. and practice patterns and learning how to streamline things in really fantastic hospitals out there that just don't have enough coverage for some transitional yeah. period. Have you guys had similar experiences? Yeah, definitely. I was going to talk about this a little later, but uh, you talked about equipment. I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, of course, I've been doing locums work since the beginning, so I can't say that I 
use something for the first time on a locums gig because I'm always doing locums gigs. But like, uh, for example, some of my sites use Striker for kyphoplasty. Some of my sites use Medtronic. And so I've had to become familiar with both pieces of equipment. Some sites are heavy in dialysis work. So uh, one site has only Gore products and another site only has BD products. So I have to familiarize myself with all those stents. Uh, AngioJet cleaner, TPA for, di- you know, these things, uh, it's been... It's been truly gratifying in terms of testing all the material. The one downside, and I think we'll probably get to this later, is you don't get to really perfect your technique with one piece of equipment, but boy, you really get a lot of good exposure. Mm-hmm. And Covey, can you talk about this uh, uh, a bit in the outpatient setting as well, uh, as well as your experience as an inpatient if you can? Definitely. I, I love your term of the locum's chameleon I, because yeah. I think it's very true. Yeah. I think I think what Vishal says also applies to the OBL world. I think it's important to adapt. And my goal as well is to make it seem like, um, you know, the regular doctor who's typically there is, is still there. And yeah. I think, you know, with OBL coverage specifically, these opportunities tend to be a little bit harder to come by, um, generally speaking, because a lot of OBLs are still independently owned and operated. So a lot of physicians, especially in the IR world, um, only really rely on locums coverage for, for vacation. There are corporate-owned OBLs and, of course, dialysis access centers that, you know, tend to have a bit of a more need for locums, if you will. You know, they'll, they'll have physicians who maybe take a little bit more vacation as part of their contract, and there's actually more opportunities. So I worked in a couple different outpatient settings before. I think the principles that Vishal mentions are, are pretty much the same. I think you have to be able to adapt and you'll, you'll notice that, you know, one center's preference in terms of their tools is different from another center's preference, which has been great for me because that's allowed me to, to learn a lot of different things that maybe I haven't been exposed to. I think with the OBL space, I think it's important that, you know, one has to be careful because there are certain service lines, if you will, that I think are a little bit more difficult, a little bit more tricky to treat on a locum basis where you don't have more of a long-term clinical presence. Um, I think about some of the quote-unquote higher-end procedures that we do in IR. I think about embolizations, for instance, uterine fibroid embolization or prostate artery embolization. I think about critical and ischemia cases. I think some centers may have a tendency or a desire to have somebody fly in and pretty much knock out a bunch of cases that might, you know, they might have a backlog for and then fly right out. I've been in situations like that before, and one way I try to address that is actually if a case must go, generally speaking, I'm talking about, you know, like a Rutherford 5 or 6 critical in ischemia uh, patient, I like to do telehealth visits ahead of time. And I think that's one way to actually have a little bit Hmm. of a presence and kind of meet the family and the patient, just, you know, have good comfort going into the case. I think along the lines of what Vishal was saying in terms of pretty much making it seem like you're not skipping a beat in terms of, you know, your presence there um, in the absence of the main physician. I like to establish relationship with that doc. So some of the sites that I work with, I'm actually pretty good friends with those IRs and they know me, I know them. Um, I worked with them before and they, you know, feel confident that they can take vacation and I could come in and um, take care of their patients. Just adding to that, I, I, I really, um, it's one of the things that I definitely struggle with is taking on challenging cases uh, not knowing if I'm going to be there in the short term for any complications and in the long term just to follow these patients up. And similarly, you know, it's not a strict requirement anywhere that I work really that I do a sign in or a sign out, but I make a habit of doing that with all my clients. If I know um, I'm coming in, I almost always know the doctor who I'm relieving. And similarly, I know the doctor that's coming in to relieve me 
no one has ever said that we have to do this, but I, I always do it. And in that process, you sometimes uh, learn about a complication that happened to your case that you otherwise would never have known, or uh, similarly, uh, a, a good outcome that you would never have been to follow up because that patient was discharged. So to a certain extent, you have to be your own uh, vanguard in terms of the quality of work that you do. Yeah, it's, it seems like what you both are speaking to is also advocating for the patients the best you can, right? You're, you're, you're protecting the patient this way by either signing out to another doctor or uh, in, in Covey's case, you know, doing, doing a telehealth visit before. I think it adds comfort. That's really interesting. I've never heard of that before, Covey. I think Another advice. Uh, can you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but Covey, yeah. can you tell, how, how are you doing that? I, yeah, I'm really, please I've never let seen us know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so actually quite simple. Um, the way I do it is I check with the site before I go and I, I'm seeing if there's a higher risk case that's going to go. And it's typically critical in ischemia. Usually that's that's the one that I worry about more. I mean, these are very sick patients. Things can go wrong and things do go wrong. Um, even unrelated to the case itself, these are very sick patients getting on your table. Mm-hmm. I always think it's good to have a rapport with the family. So what I do is actually working with the site I'll just establish a quick telehealth visit and, you know, different sites have different platforms. Uh, I've even used something as simple as Zoom or FaceTime, to be honest with you. It's not really so much for billing purposes, but really just understanding, you know, who the patient is. I want them to know who I am and Mm -hmm. uh, we got to have good rapport. And then I think what Vishal is saying is, is very important. I think it's great. You need to have that kind of sign out, if you will, with, with the home physician, right? You, you want to make sure that there's um, a transition of care and these patients are you know, being treated just like you treat your own family. Interesting. So you guys are both talking about, you know, very clinically IR-based sort of practice patterns that that you've established at multiple sites around the country. So, I mean, uh, for our listeners out there, is it best to be a team player or to be a builder for these practices? Kavya, I'll have you answer first. So are these two mutually exclusive things? Like, do you want to be a team player and just get these cases done? Do you want to build the practices actively? And can these two things coexist in your, you know, in, in your shorter, uh, shorter term locums gigs? Yeah, great question. So this is something I struggled with um, leaving the OBL. I think I had this limiting belief that you need to be physically present in one location to practice, quote unquote, high end IR. And I think I quickly learned that that's actually not true. <laughs> I think, you know, I think with respect to your question, I think you need to do both. Um, mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that you're building a clinical practice is essential, though I think there's a lot of positives that can come from that. But I think, number one, you have to be a team player. There's no question about it, right? You're being hired uh, for a certain role, okay? You're, you're being put into a, a position to fill a need. I think you have to fill that need, right? There's no question about it. You have to do it to the best of your abilities. You have to take great care of patients. There's no questions uh, asked about that. You just got to do it. But I think often there's this misconception with respect to locums that that's where it ends, okay? You just do the cases and you leave and that's that. And I think that's completely false. I don't think it has to be that way. I think there's plenty of opportunities for us to actually add significant value above and beyond our role as interventional radiologists, just doing cases that other people ask us to do. I think there's many communities that you know, need physicians like us who are clinically oriented, who can actually create service lines. And I think that's something that I've, uh, I've been doing in my, you know, current positions. I'm sure Vishal has as well. I think in, in some ways too, we're, we're kind of put into those positions. No one necessarily mm-hmm. asks you to, but you might come across a situation where you see a patient, you know, and um, perhaps you can do something that's not typically done in that setting, right? Um, I think a common one is actually PE work. I, I think that 
that's one that, uh, that, you know, we can add a lot of value on the inpatient side. On the outpatient side, I think there's certain embolization procedures that, you know, we can, we can really help build. I think on my end, it's been prostate artery embolization. And, uh, you know, part of my role has been introducing different sites, different IRs um, to this procedure and kind of the service line. So I think, I think both. And, and, you know, it's really a two-way street, right? Because I think when we practice in a clinically oriented fashion and we're helping build you know, service lines, um, treating certain disease states, we're clearly generating revenue for, for practices and particularly in the OBL side, there's, there's no question about it. But I think for those of us early in our career, it's also somewhat self-serving too, right? Because by doing so, we're getting more repetition. Okay. We're, we're establishing expertise and we're taking care of patients. And that's really important. I, I think it really helps us. And I know for me, it's helped me a lot. It's helped me become a better physician. And I think um, there's many great opportunities to do this out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. So so you're, you're constantly adding to your bag of trips. I mean, to take that a little further, we do see sort of two phases of IR physicians that are doing more locums work. I don't know if, if you both have encountered that, but generally early career physicians, you know, people generally either unmarried or without children yet, and then people later on in their career who, you know, who may have kids who put kids through college uh, or may, may, you know, never decided to have children who are sort of winding down and just getting that, that traveling experience for less actual clinical work and may not want to do the, the hospital setting anymore. So it's, it's really interesting, um, especially from the early career side, to hear about this idea of adding to your bag of tricks and, and getting more reps in. I think that's really important. Because you, you may not see a certain type of case at your inpatient hospital. I know, you know, personally for, for, for the hospitals that I work at, it's been really tough to build prostate artery embolization. I mean, you know, we've, we've done a few here and there, a handful, but we haven't, we haven't really gotten that, gotten that train moving. And it's, uh, it, it's interesting to see how you could build that on an outpatient setting and OBL setting through locums. Yeah, definitely. I, I think in, in many ways, you know, I think we view locums as typically just being a quote unquote hired gun, which I think is completely false. I, I, it does not have to be that way. And I think in many ways we're consultants. I think we're clinical consultants. And that's kind of how I view service lines like Prostate Embo, for instance. You know, I, if, if you can pretty much go in and help a community build this type of practice, that's great. It's very doable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to, you know, make an analogy here, I know that there are, um, you know, prominent neurointerventionalists, um, both on the neurosurgical and neuro IR side here in Chicagoland, who cover many hospitals for stroke thrombectomy. They don't just cover the big downtown academic centers, but to get the, the door to retrieval time, you know, as, as, as quick as possible, they'll actually travel out to the community center, get the patient on the table by the time they're there and get the thrombus out before, you know, before an hour, before 90 minutes. When, when, when a stroke alert's activated. So I, I find it to be a bit hypocritical when people are calling IR locums who are providing essential services for hospitals hired guns versus other services uh, who are doing the exact same thing. Often they are also IR trained, but just in the neurospace and not referring to them as hired guns, but really, you know, crediting them with adding value to the system and healthcare overall. I, I'm curious about your thoughts on that, Vishal. Yeah, I mean, I think that I also don't like the term hired guns uh, or hired gun, I should say. And um, uh, definitely uh, a lot of this goes back to, I think, some of the things that we as a field are pushing back on in general in terms of where is our value derived and what value are we adding to the healthcare system and, and, and the chain of, uh, of healthcare services. And so um, definitely 
there's definitely a disconnect between what people perceive our role to be and and otherwise. Some of it, I think, has to do with the perceived, and I shouldn't say perceived, the definite critical nature of what neurocritical or neuro IR work is versus, say, some of the other work that we're doing. Even though we do a lot of emergent cases, we just don't have that metric, that door, door to balloon, door to thrombus, door to declot time. But when you've got a patient who's got a mass GI bleed, we're not on the clock per se, but we're on the clock. So uh, some of this is going to have to be a perception change. And going back to what you were talking about, I think that there definitely is locums work. Like, you know, we should probably at some point talk about how far the three of us are out of training just to give our listeners a perspective on on where we are in our respective careers. But, but so for example, I'm definitely early career, only, you know, three years out of fellowship and you guys are a little ahead of me, but not further ahead of me, not that much further ahead of me. But there are some people that are definitely late career for whom this clinical aspect of IRs is foreign and also in some cases unwanted. Uh, and that is something that, you know, we're going to have to struggle with. And that's why this term locums doctor being so all encompassing, uh, it just may not be appropriate because I can tell you just like Covey's talking about like two of my clients, one in Florida uh, and one in Indiana, like I was part of the rotating group and I became the guy who built the practice. Like I changed all the protocols, make sure that the anticoagulation guidelines are all on schedule. And then the guys who would come after me would usually just say, well, what does Vishal do? And then they would just follow that. So there's definitely a role to build a practice. Uh, and I can't tell you how many times, uh, just uh, four days ago, I did an ovarian vein embolization on a patient who was referred to me for a uterine fibroid, or not uterine fibroid, uterine artery embolization because she was having pelvic pain, but was too considered too high risk to get her uterus removed. So they, hmm. the referrer thought, well, maybe we'll just embolize the uterus. And I said, well, that's really not what she needs. She's got a uh, pelvic congestion syndrome. She needs an ovarian vein embolization. And they had never heard of this procedure. Um, yes. and, and I didn't have to do that. Nobody told me to do it. But um, you see a CT scan, you've got a finding, you can act on it. But I, I agree with you. Uh, there's, a, there's a perception and an image change that's going to have to happen, not only with locum's work, but with interventional radiology in general. And I, I kind of think those two are hand in hand. And that's why there's this frustration. Yeah, and I think we're going we're to see that a lot more as, you know, newer generations of IRs come up very much more clinically oriented and, you know, direct to IR straight from medical school. We'll get into that in just a little bit, um, but I do uh, want to talk about another perception of locums, which is that it's a very disorganized life, that you're constantly on the move and, you know, you're trying to balance clients, um, your own needs, you know, potentially your family's needs and, you know, your social life and things like that. How do you manage your life, uh, in, in, in a broad sense, Vishal, um, you know, travel, call, et cetera. Yeah. So I take a lot of call. There's no doubt about it. Uh, people usually, uh, freak out when they hear how much call I take. I would say, um, uh, in the last 365 days, I've probably taken somewhere around 280 or 290 days of call. Now, you know, call can be different depending on what facility you're working at and how busy their call truly is. For me, just managing my life, uh, two things that have been really important for me is uh, finding a gym or making sure that I use the gym that's at the hotel. So I will often choose a hotel that that has, you know, not just, you know, an elliptical machine and a treadmill, but has a full set of weights and I can actually lift weights and and uh, be healthy. And then eating food has been a tremendous uh, uh, thing for me. When I first started, I was eating out all the time. I've actually started one of these, you know, meal delivery services where um, every Tuesday, my meals arrive and uh, um, I get to choose which ones I want. I've actually been doing mostly keto stuff and uh, they deliver it to uh, my hotel with an ice pack. And as long as I 
intercepted on time. I'm set. And these are, you know, nicely portioned meals, um, a little salty, but uh, uh, I, I think those two things are really important. Otherwise, this this life can really grind on you. We may talk a little bit more later on about how to keep all of this stuff organized. I don't know if you want me to talk about that now. Yeah, but- talk about it now, man. I, I'm, I'm interested, especially, um, can you speak to how much of this is automated? And, and how far in advance are you setting these calendars and schedules? Yeah. Like give uh, give the trainees a bit of an experience of of what your week to week and then month to month is, if, if you can. Yeah. So I typically build my contracts one week at a time and we'll talk more. And I'm curious to see how Covey does his as well, doing a lot of outpatient work that he does. But uh, I build my contracts one week at a time. I will stay with the client more than one week in a row if necessary. Uh, but I have also been known to literally move every week. Um, and that usually serves most of my clients' needs because I'm usually covering some partners or some uh, existing interventional radiologist schedule. And even if I'm not covering somebody, somebody else may be coming in from their regular job and can offer a, a full week and doesn't want to offer more, doesn't want to offer less. So I think one week is pretty standard. I don't, Covey, what are you seeing? Are, are you doing weeks at a time or? Yeah. So I'm a little different. I'm maybe the situation for me is a little unique, but I, I think it's a little bit more common now with the state of the market. I actually have kind of what I consider an anchor position. So I'm up in Minnesota about two to three weeks a month. So I've committed to 32 weeks over the course of the year. So that hospital has kind of become more or less home base in terms of mm-hmm. my professional life. And what I do is like you, Vishal, I take a bunch of call. I think um, it makes it very attractive for the folks up there. Yeah. allowed me to have a little bit of a longer term contract. Um, and I basically, you know, center my my professional life around my wife's schedule, who's a busy vascular surgery fellow in New York City. So she works two weekends a month. So I work two weekends a month. So I take two weekends a call. I'll be up in Minnesota for about two to three weeks. Um, if I have a weekend off and uh, she's off, I'll go to New York City. Mm-hmm. We still have her home in Durham, North Carolina. So if, uh, you know, if it coincides with one of those weekends that she's off, we'll just split it between New York and, and North Carolina. And then I have about a week a month on average where I do outpatient work. And typically that's down here in Florida. So, you know, I'll be, I'll be up in Minnesota for up to two weeks at a time, maybe a weekend off, back again for a third week, then I'll fly down to Florida. I'll spend anywhere from one to five days here, depending depending on the month. And then I usually go home to North Carolina to, you know, kind of check in on my house, which I've turned into an Airbnb, and then back up to Minnesota, rinse, repeat. So kind of related to what you're saying, like you see, Covey has got a fixed position. And so when he goes somewhere, he probably gives a full week. So someone like me who does not have a fixed position, even if I wanted to do, say, a week and a half, it wouldn't fit with the other guy who's coming in. So typically a week at a time has... Uh, has worked pretty well for me and, and for most of my clients and for the people who I'm relieving and the people who are relieving me. Um, and then regarding organization, you know, uh, loyalty programs with your airlines, obviously um, I have a I have schedules on schedules on schedules. I'm always double checking my schedule with my client's schedules because I can't tell you how many times mistakes are made. Um, and then we'll probably talk a little bit more about, you know, structuring this financially, but, you know, I have separate credit cards for all of my business related work so that it makes things very easy to organize uh, um, my expenses. And so is your scheduling all electronic? Are you on Google calendars or do you have um, a more formal application that you're using on your phone or computer um, than something like a calendar? My clients do. I'd say QGenda is pretty popular amongst many of them. Uh, But for my own schedule, I have a master schedule uh, that's on a OneNote document that basically I, I break because this is how I take my contracts one week at a time. I break the entire year into weekdays and then weekends 
all the way through the year. And I tell, I tell myself what time I'm showing up, what time I am, am relieved and, and where I'm going to be. And uh, I constantly uh, double check that, triple check that with my clients. And in general, um, I think you were asking me sort of for the listeners, uh, I build my schedule one week at a time, about three months in advance. Some of my clients now, particularly in this market, are desperate to fill up even more dates because they know that if they don't get me now, they probably won't get me three months from now. So uh, a few of my clients are now trying to ask me to commit for even as late as the end of this year, which is not wow. the way that it was two years ago. Um, and that's just, I think, a reflection of the demand right now. Cool. Moving on a little bit uh, to discussing the sort of the benefits of being a locum's IR doctor. Uh, let's talk about some of the pros. Kavi, can you talk a bit about just the experiences that you've had and some of the benefits of being an IR doc? Definitely. So I think, you know, the big thing for me is kind of exposure to different different people. So not only IRs, but technologists, nurses, different hospitals, different outpatient facilities, and just seeing how things are done. I think you you quickly learn that when you see different different practice uh, setups, you, you notice different patterns, you, you notice uh, how people kind of run their schedule. And it's actually been really eye-opening to me, especially after coming from the OBL, where I was actually responsible for some of the workflows of minority owner. So it's actually been very insightful seeing how different practices are set up. I think that's been a huge experience. I think leaning on different IRs and getting to know different IRs, I think I'm very fortunate. Uh, a lot of the sites that I work with have experienced IRs who have, you know, pretty much have become mentors to me. So that's something I certainly did not expect going into this. And that's actually been quite wonderful. So expanding my professional network and, and learning from some pretty awesome people has been pretty great. And I think along those same lines, I've, I've gotten to meet a lot of people in the process, uh, talking about it, writing about it. It's been really good. So it turns out that, you know, I've probably have now had more opportunities open up to me than, than I ever thought I would. Um, I always had this negative connotation about locums going in like, oh, you know, hired gun, you know, temporary doctor, you know, is there something wrong? <laughs> but it, it's not the case at all. It's actually been really awesome. So have, have any of these clients reached out to you? It's, it seems like, you know, you have long-term contracts over 30 weeks this year with that, with, with, with the group in Minnesota. Have any of these uh, clients contacted you or approached you about being a full-time uh, staff member? Definitely. Yep. It's uh, happened and uh, thankfully continues to happen. So I'll keep trying to do a good job and, you know, uh, just do the best I can. But I think, you know, what's really interesting is, you know, you meet new IRs, then you, your world opens up, you know, you meet people, you meet people that they're associated with and you start learning about new opportunities. I'm sure Vishal could speak to this too. I mean, he's what worked at over 32 hospitals. Um, you you yeah. just, you realize it's a very small world. And I think if you, if you do a good job and I think if you're honest and you communicate well and just do the best you can to take care of patients, you'll, you'll notice very quickly that the world is quite small and many opportunities open up. Yeah. Um, Vishal, one of the other benefits people talk about is the tax benefits of being a locum's IR doc. Now, remember, we are not financial advisors, but just um, in brief, to people who are very unfamiliar with post-residency taxes and how this works, can you speak about some of these benefits? Yeah, great question. So I think the pandemic uh, revealed a lot about uh, how compensation is structured. And I, for example, know plenty of uh, employed radiologists who took pay cuts during the pandemic, which is you know, probably one of the things that shouldn't happen in an employed position. That's what people consider one of the benefits of uh, not being 
in a feast or famine world like I do. That being said, uh, I definitely got hit pretty hard by the pandemic financially because a lot of the locums work did dry up. And then, of course, it came raging back uh, stronger than ever. Tax wise, though, um, and again, I'm not a financial advisor. I do have a professional accountant uh, because my tax situation is complicated because I have multiple streams of incomes in multiple states. Uh, so I needed someone to help me navigate through all of that. Uh, when I first started doing this, uh, back when I was a resident, uh, I just did this as an independent contractor, no separate entity. And then uh, I created my own LLC uh, when I was in residency. And then most recently, uh, I have an S corporation. I don't necessarily advocate that that's a progression or a maturation, but that I have seen pretty much all three of the ways of doing this in terms of structuring your earnings as a 1099 income earner. And then uh, the tax benefits are, you know, many of the expenses that uh, uh, you need to do uh, from a routine perspective are expensable. My phone is expensable. All my travel is expensable. Uh, anything, I, basically I work 24-7, 365, so I can justify a lot of things as a business expense. And then really you have to talk to an accountant about the various retirement plans that open up to you through this structure, whether it's uh, an IRA with a contribution from your company uh, or a defined benefit plan. These are all things that you have to talk to your accountant about, but there are definitely some advantages, especially if the employer who's maybe giving you the alternative in an employee situation isn't offering you a lot of those things. And uh, I can't tell you, I created this LLC back when I was a resident, never thought anything of it, but it has become so handy for me as I have branched and forayed into so many other aspects. I have a working entity that allows me to keep my personal finances and my business finances separate. Uh, so um, I've learned a lot and I would advocate anyone in training to look into this uh, and earlier rather than later because it's very difficult to get some of these things started when you become a fully practicing person in, in your, your time is, well, I guess you're, there's never enough time anyways, but uh, I would advocate looking into this for anybody. And, and by the way, I had a, an attending in residency who was always trying to basically, um, restrain is not the right word, but always trying to remind me that to not get ahead of myself. And she was a great attending, taught me a lot of what I know for uh, a neuro IR. In fact, I did an IMAX artery embolization not too long ago because I felt comfortable doing one because I'd done so many with her. But I really still to this day disagree with with her statement. I don't think that if you're in training, you have to stop looking into these topics until your training is done. Like it's never too early to start. Um, the earlier you start, uh, the more um, comfortable you're going to be when you're done. That's great advice. That's great advice. And uh, Covey, maybe you can speak to this. Um, so a lot of people come out of training and they are, they're used to having their, you know, their benefits, their health coverage, um, all the other benefits that come with being an employee in residency, which are, you know, primo benefits at, at most academic centers. And they feel that warm, fuzzy feeling when they're offered a W-2 job and that comes with benefits, uh, you know, associated with them, which, which can be quite pricey um, when you're out there in the real world as a high earner. The question is, uh, can you speak to benefits as a 1099 fully independent locums physician? Sure thing. So I think my situation is is maybe unique, but maybe not too unique. I think a lot of us have spouses who are working professionals, but I, I'll say the first benefit, which I think is, I agree with Vishal wholeheartedly. I think the ability to invest um, for your retirement is just so much better as a 1099 at minimum. I, I, it's just... 
I mean, leaps and bounds. I, I think about my first practice and the retirement package that we had and how much uh, one could contribute and how much the employer would contribute. And I realize I'm able to do a lot more on my own. Um, I'm, a, I'm a 1099. I have a solo 401k. Um, it's fantastic. <laughs> I, I highly recommend it to, to anyone. I think getting to your question about, you know, some of the, you know, more costly quote unquote benefits that we think about, right. With a typical W2 job, uh, namely health insurance, right. Yeah. That's a, that's a big one. I think I am a little lucky in this sense and that my wife is still a trainee. So she's a W2 wage earner. So she, you know, provides me with that wonderful benefit. Mm-hmm. And in turn, she gets all my deductions, which is great. So yeah. That's actually a really nice way to, to set things up and like to, you know, remind, you know, the people listening to this, um, just cause you have a W2 position doesn't mean you can't have a 1099 position as well. Mm-hmm. You know, like you do Shamit, you can do locums, um, during your weeks off. Um, you can do side gigs, pretty much anything that you can be paid on a 1099 basis is a great way to, you know, uh, save a little bit more for retirement, give yourself more of a financial cushion. So. I think, uh, I think that's key. Yeah, that's a great point. Just for my own edification, not to interrupt you guys, I'm curious, uh, you're, you guys all do 1099 work. I have an S corporation now. How have you guys structured your stuff? Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm a 1099. Um, I, I kind of went into this, not, you know, this is pretty new to me. I, the whole world of 1099 kind of came into play for me when I became an OBL owner. It's a minority owner. I was structured as a 1099 who received K1 distributions based on my equity stake. I went into locums uh, thinking that, hey, this might just be a short-term thing. Maybe I'll Mm -hmm. just find another OBL to work in. And it turns out that it's not quite as short-term as I thought it would be. (laughs) I'm actually really enjoying it. So I think what's likely going to happen is I I will structure as an S-Corp, probably save uh, for the listeners out there. You're you're really saving on self-employment tax by doing Mm -hmm. this. I do still have a side W-2 position, so the situation is a little muddy right now. But I think, you know, as a 1099, where I'm at right now, it, it, it's great. I could optimize things a little bit more by being an S-Corp. I just haven't done it yet. Mm-hmm. And then Shamath, for you, because y- you do probably a little less 1099 work than me and Covey, do you have an entity or do you just keep this separate as strictly 1099? Yeah, great question. So I, um, so my situation is a little unique. My, my wife is also a full-time physician. Uh, we're both W-2 employed. Um, obviously, I have... My, my wife's a pediatric subspecialist, so as one would expect, she barely gets any vacation. Um, you know, uh, about a third the amount of vacation that I get in a given year as a W two interventional radiologist. So I take a bunch of my weeks uh, off as both W two and ten ninety nine locums. So my practice is uh, part of a larger private equity practice that's national, and the way that it's structured, I I do have to take the internal quote, internal moonlighting within the region as W-2 payment. And then I also have other 1099 locums gigs outside of my practice where where I take them as as 1099 payments. Because I only started this really um, a quarter of the way through 2021, I haven't reached the amount in 1099 that it it makes a difference for me Mm -hmm. to to justify into an LLC or S-Corp. Hopefully now in 2022, I'm, I'm able to do that. And I, I still need to talk to my tax professional about that. But the early advice is that I will restructure into some sort of LLC or S-Corp to reap the same uh, benefits that you guys are getting. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, this is fascinating stuff. We have such different experiences, yet a lot of it aligns in, in, in the way that we um, approach this whole world of locum. So we talked a bit about uh, the upsides, the pros. Now, there are 
clearly, you know, with, with any job, there are going to be downsides. So as full-time locums guys, let's start with Vishal. What are some of the downsides and challenges as being a full-time independent locum stock? Yeah, well, I think uh, there are some downsides for me that are unique to me because I did this straight out of training. So that was a little nerve-wracking because most of the places that I work at, I'm alone. I don't have another colleague, uh, interventional or in some cases even diagnostic for me to just run things by. So having that second opinion is uh, sometimes challenging to get. Now, of course, I've got all my co-fellows on speed dial and we have a text message thread, but sometimes you want someone to just come into the room and say, mm -hmm. hey, what do you think about this? Or I'm about to take on this very complex case. Um, can you do these other minor cases so that I don't have to stress out about them? I think those are definite disadvantages. I'm very jealous of what Covey's got going on, particularly in the OBL space. It took me, I would say, about a year and a half before I really sort of got my, my feet underneath me and could start taking on challenging cases. I, of course, handled all the high-end emergent work, but doing high-end non-emergent work, you sort of have to build a reputation before you take on that first complex case. Uh, and I think compared to my peers who went directly out of training into more established practices or, or I guess, non-locums work, uh, they got that a little earlier on. And then you also pretty much have to do what the client needs. So you may end up doing a lot of procedures that you're not that excited to do, but need to be done because that's what the client expects. Uh, I'm talking about the paras, the thoras, the lumbar punctures, the myelograms, that kind of stuff. In your, in your opinion, you know, quite frankly, do you feel like your skills have deteriorated because, uh, I guess initially on, you felt like you were doing less high-end cases. I'm assuming at Hopkins, you were doing high-end oncology work, venous yeah. disease, arterial disease. Um, yeah. How about coming out in, into some of these locums jobs? If you would ask me two years ago, I would have said yes. Uh, as you ask me now, and I re reflect fairly on the last three years, I would say I'm probably just on par with where I would have been if I had not gone down this path, because you cannot discredit the amount of times that I've had to bring a new service line into a hospital, the amount of confidence and research that you have to do because you're the one who's, you know, deciding what embolic agents they need to have. Or, uh, for example, one of the sites that I worked at and had never used Sotradecol foam. So I had to go look up, uh, you know, 1%, 3%. Uh, how much do you even need to order? Uh, what, what's a reasonable amount for this procedure? And what's the expiration date? How much is going to be usable in the future? There's definitely a hit that comes with not joining a practice with experienced partners or a place where high-end IR is just sort of built into the practice. But the amount of confidence that I've obtained by having to start those practice, those service lines is um, not only very, um, makes me very confident, but also brings a tremendous amount of gratitude from the client uh, in a way that you wouldn't get if you just sort of walked into that. Mm. But, uh, but, but you definitely have to be careful coming out because you're, you're working alone in a lot of cases. That is super interesting. Kavi, uh, can you speak to that and, and, and maybe get into a bit about, is there a stigma associated with being a full-time locum stock? Yeah, I think we've alluded to it a little bit before, but I, I think there totally is a stigma. I think, um, you know, it's reflected, especially among, you know, certain people. Um, and I think, you know, the, the thought is that you can't have a clinically oriented practice if you're doing locums. You're just coming in for a short period of time and you're leaving, flying in, flying out. And I think some elements of that maybe are true, but they don't have to be true, right? I think this idea of clinical IR having a longitudinal clinic or practicing in a longitudinal fashion should be really irrespective of one's employment um, arrangement with a facility, right? If you are simply uh, a 
you know, contract worker or if you're a quote unquote permanent worker, right? I think one thing that, that I've seen, I, I think one's ability to practice in a clinical fashion is really more dependent on that person and whether the site is willing to, you know, partake in you doing that. I think I've been very fortunate. I think in the OBL world, you pretty much have to be clinical with the exception of maybe dialysis care. I'm not saying that's not clinical uh, in that sense, but, you know, it's typically cases that are not generated from clinical consultation via an outpatient clinic. Right. But I think there's a lot of other service lines in the OBL setting, which, which you do see patients and that's how you generate your, your cases, right? We're talking about venous disease, critical limb ischemia, um, women's health, men's health, things like that. And if you're going to do OBL locums, you pretty much have to be clinical, right? Whether or not you're there for a week or two weeks or whatnot, I think that's important. What I've learned in the hospital is I've been very fortunate to be at a site, a kind of this anchor site that actually has a clinical practice. They actually have a rounding service. They actually have you know, a longitudinal clinic. So being um, put into the fold in that process, being able to work with our APPs, round on patients, um, to see inpatients that I treat on an outpatient basis and kind of establish my own little clinic has actually been quite easy, which, which has been great. And I think, I think that's something that the healthcare system where I work values. I, I think that's, that's very important. And that's something that was big for me. I, I, you know, decided to take this position because it offers me that opportunity. I think there's many other opportunities out there for people. I think they just have to find them. So you get consults. Yes. Definitely. Correct. Definitely get consults, not orders. Vishal, you also get consults at several of your sites? Yeah, uh, sometimes in in name only and in other places like legit consults. So mm. I would say about 30, 40% of my clients, uh, it's just simply a consultation to IR with really uh, a problem and not really a request for a procedure. Another 40% do a consultation, but in the order, say what they want. And that's pretty much what they're expecting. Sure. And then about 20% of my clients, they don't even do a consultation. It's just a, a straight order for what they want. And then it's my responsibility to sort of uh, call that provider and say, well, this is not appropriate. Uh, this is not what we would do, or this is why I don't want to do it. Uh, and then I generally have to make some sort of documentation as to why I'm saying no to their order. Sure. Yeah, I, I have a very similar uh, experience. I mean, um, one of the most clinically oriented places I work actually um, outside of my own practice uh, is the group in Mishawaka at, at St. Joseph's Hospital, uh, XRC, which is a full 100% IR group that just, I mean, runs everything as clinically as you could ever imagine. I mean, you know, everything, everything that comes through from the floor is a consult. It is always physician to physician communication. IR's word is very, very respected within the hospital. And it's an absolute delight to work there. I mean, it's, you know, these, I feel like practices that are set up like that really um, make it enjoyable to provide locums coverage. Um, you know, there, there, there are certainly, you, you certainly don't feel like a gun for hire and you can do very high end complex IR. As I mentioned earlier, my first time using the flow retriever was out there and uh, it was, uh, it was a great experience. You know, they had a great, uh, they, they just had a great support system and they knew exactly what they were doing from top to bottom. All right, guys, uh, let's let's shift to another part of the topic. This conversation has been fascinating so far. Um, thank you guys so much for participating again. Let's talk a bit about finding opportunities um, for locums work. I mean, Vishal, you've worked in 32 different hospitals. Let's get to you in a sec, but let's start with Covey. Talk to us a bit about headhunters or you know agency-based locums gigs versus finding your own gigs. What are your experiences uh, in both? What are the benefits and disadvantages of each? Yeah, definitely. So I, I can't wait to hear what Michelle has to say about this because I think there's <laughs> a lot I could learn from him. 
But, you know, my, my path to locums, as I mentioned, was after I, I left the OBL after failed partnerships. So I was kind of, kind of feeling down on myself, you know, kind of wondering, geez, what am I, what am I going to do with my career here? It was all gung-ho on the OBL and all of a sudden, you know, it didn't work out. I got my opportunity in Minnesota through Recruiter. And, you know, I think a lot of us in, in medicine as a whole, definitely IR, but really in medicine, we, we receive a lot of, you know, cold calls and emails and LinkedIn message requests from various headhunters and agencies that are, that are looking to fill a need. And sometimes it can be frankly annoying, but I got, I got, um, in touch with, uh, with the recruiter who just happened to contact me at the right time. And, uh, it turns out that this facility in Minnesota needed, needed at least a few months in coverage and, uh, thought to myself, Hey, this might be a good opportunity. The rates I thought were incredibly low. I'm happy to talk about that with anyone offline, but it's something that, you know, I definitely got a sense it doesn't seem right, but I was able to negotiate things. And, and that's how I kind of got to my first position in the hospital. Locum's position was through a, through an agency and I still work with the agency. They've been good to me. You know, I, I think I've, now that I've been in this world a little bit, I've learned that, you know, there are pros and cons. Um, definitely. I think the pros are finding opportunities, especially if you haven't been doing locums already. I think it's, it's very easy to just get plugged in with a recruiter or agency and just be offered a position somewhere and um, just move forward with it. I think um, the recruiters on the whole are pretty motivated to help you get licensed in terms of, you know, the state um, that, that you'd like to work in. I think they, they do help up front with credentialing. I think the downsides are you clearly pay a premium for it. I've noticed, especially now doing OBL work, I was much more plugged into the OBL community having been in an OBL that was independently owned and operated. I have a lot of OBL contacts. So for my OBL locums work, that's all directly with the actual facilities and the owners who oftentimes are physicians. So that's very easy. You just, you know, these are relationships with people who have had for a few years now. And I think one thing you notice is when you work directly with the facility, you tend to get better rates than what you can if you just, you know, work through a middleman. Now, I think the middleman has a role to play in, in certain, certain instances. But now that I've kind of done it and kind of understand the game, I think, I think one quickly realizes that there's plenty of opportunities to just do it on your own. And I can't wait to hear what Vishal has to say about that. Yeah. I'm very passionate on this topic. So let me tell you that I have used agencies and headhunters. I don't uh, at all anymore. So I'll go ahead and just briefly talk about the advantages and then very quickly tell you why um, you do not need them. So uh, Covey's absolutely correct. When you're first getting started doing this, uh, it can be overbearing and a little scary. And so uh, the agencies give you a, a little bit of a security and they have existing infrastructure. This goes back, I believe, in my personal opinion, to why I would tell almost any trainee, and I'm, I'm assuming that many of the listeners are trainees, just go create an entity, man. Uh, it's not expensive. It doesn't take a lot of work and you'll never know when you need it. So for example, all of my work is directly through my company. Um, everything is a contract with my company. And, uh, I happen to have had that while I was in training. So it was a very natural next step for me. They do provide some licensing stuff uh, in terms of getting licensed in states and with local hospitals and credentialing. And that's a, really, in my opinion, that's all they serve. I'll talk about some of the, the horrors that I've had, uh, with them and why I just Having said a few things that I think that they provide as an advantage, I would tell anyone who's listening to this podcast, you don't need them. You shouldn't use them. Uh, you could do this on your own. So for, you know, licensure, for example, um, I can tell you about three or four months ago, I had to renew my license in the state of Florida, uh, which was initially gotten from me, I don't know, two and a half years ago by one of the agencies. And for, I could not refresh or could not renew the darn thing. I couldn't figure out why. 
and someone had written down the wrong social security number, which is part of the authentication process. And I kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it. Finally, I got this good agent with the state of Florida who said, I don't know why you can't get in, man. I'm looking at your page right now. And I said, just for the hell of it, why don't we just confirm the social security number? And of course, he probably really shouldn't be discussing my entire social security number, but I gave it to him. He's like, yeah, that's the problem, but one of the numbers is wrong. Uh, so, you know, you're handing off a lot of responsibility to people that are um, uh, not necessarily paying close attention. Secondly, uh, I'm very nervous. I'm a little bit of a conspiracy theorist, maybe borderline. You're handing over your CV and your resume, all of which is being harvested for information. And then really for me, I'll tell you what the, the straw that broke the camel's back, for me, it was the pandemic. That really told myself I'm never working with them ever again. So uh, I can't speak about specifics for every locums agency. I am happy to talk about what I believe is a hierarchy of agencies. But let me talk about how I think pretty much all of them are structured, which is their contract language basically says, if we don't get paid, you don't get paid. So during the pandemic, a number of my clients, many large corporate entities would cancel my work and breach the contract with the middleman, which is the agency. And then the agency said they would just cancel on me, even though that's a breach of my contract based on the timeline. So for example, one of my clients uh, canceled on the agency two days before I was supposed to show up for six weeks of work. And I received no financial compensation. I had no recourse because they have that clause that says you can't, uh, we can't, we're not under no obligation to pay you if we have not received payment, which is sort of a, a roundabout way of making sure that their exposure is limited. Simultaneously, uh, many of these companies have all kinds of clauses regarding about you working directly with, the, with for example, the hospital or the group. They basically own you for roughly two years. Uh, and if you want to work directly with that client, then you have to pay uh, to get bought out of the contract. And, and, and Similarly, the hospital or other entity has to pay the agency as well. It's a, it's a whole, um, I got to be careful using the word racket, but it's a, it's a, it's a whole, um, it's a whole system meant to control the relationship. And there's just no reason for, for that to happen. Sorry, I'm getting pretty animated about this topic, but no, I really, is, really feel strongly important. about this. So, you know, the agencies basically want to represent you because once they represent you or what they call present you then they own you and your relationship with whoever they're presenting you to, even though you may not have very seriously wanted to work at that site, or maybe it wasn't going to work out, or it, but it would have worked out in the future. So you got to be very careful with the agencies and when they, when they formally present you, because then they own that relationship for two years. And if you want to go out, uh, you have to be bought out and it's usually at a significant expense. And, and that, that expense ultimately comes out of I mean, money doesn't come out of, there's no, not, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So, you know, that money comes from what you could have been compensated. It's just the cost of doing business. So I can't tell you how many of my clients I have found, just going, check the, check the boards. Anyone that's looking mm -hmm. for a permanent person would be more than happy to have an interventional radiologist as a locums person. You don't have to use the agencies. Uh, really all they're providing you, if there's one thing that they're providing you that I think is difficult to replicate, because I don't think that they're licensure and credentialing stuff is really that much work. It's, it's the malpractice insurance, but even there you have to be careful because, uh, uh, are they providing you tail? Are they not providing you tail? Uh, you don't know what kind of policy they're getting you, but, but it is true that they have access to insurance contracts for short-term assignments. Like they can insure somebody for five days of work. They have that kind of large volume that you would not be able to secure, but I can tell you having done this 
you know, for three years with so many people in so many different capacities, you can usually be added to an existing insurance policy for uh, minimal expense, if no expense, depending on whether you're qualified as just someone covering an FTE uh, versus are you an additional FTE. So are you typically covering and picking up the licensure and malpractice costs out of pocket, out, out of your entity? Or no, are you I, expensing this to the facility directly? I would say uh, 80% of the time, it's a reimbursed expense from the client. 20% of the time, I may build that cost into, into my rate uh, and then just absorb the cost uh, as a business. And then in terms of malpractice insurance, only once have I held my own policy. Every other time I have been able to find a workaround, whether it's working for a private practice private practice group, and they just sort of add me on to their policy because we're still functioning within the number of FTEs that they have assigned to their group policy. And then, of course, hospitals have access to all kinds of insurance policies that you would maybe not have access to. And then corporate radiology has access to these products as well. So really, the only problem that I could foresee, and I'm curious what Covey has to say about this, is maybe if you're working in a very small entity like an OBL that may be individually owned, mm -hmm. uh, you may need to figure out how to make that work. But I would imagine in those cases, you may also be able to uh, get added on to the policy of the primary person because you're still functioning within the role of one FTE. Yeah. How, how does this work in non-traditional, uh, smaller, independent practices, Covey? Yeah, definitely. So I, I agree with Vishal on that. I think for, for OBLs, it's actually quite simple. As Vishal stated, usually you're able to get in under, you know, the main, you know, physician's policy, right? So it's very easy. You know, if you're coming in for a few weeks of vacation coverage a year, it's, it's great. You know, it's very simple. It's low cost to the practice and really should not influence your compensation, at least on the OBL side. Now, I encourage the listener to be very careful if they decide to work with certain entities, particularly corporate owned OBLs, oftentimes, in my experience, at least, they will use the whole malpractice um, insurance cost to justify their current rates. And I think if one were to look at malpractice insurance, uh, you know, on their own in terms of acquiring it on their own, and this is something I'm very familiar with, having paid my own malpractice as an OBL minority owner, you'll realize that the costs are actually very, very minimal. So please don't let anyone, you know, use that uh, as leverage in terms of underpaying you. I think the other thing too, that I want to echo what Vishal is saying is the concept of tail insurance is so critical. And I'm ashamed to say, but you know, I have no, you know, uh, problem saying it is I, I live this in my own life. My, my first, uh, radiology group practice, um, I didn't have tail covered. I got stuck with, I think a $18,000 bill that I had to pay when I left. So it's a huge issue. So I, I'd make sure that tail is included. And I think these are costs that any, any employer, hospital, corporate, OBL should pay. So how familiar are the two of you with the two main types of tail coverage, uh, claims-based and occurrence? Well, I guess policy is not really tail coverage, but uh, how familiar are the two of you with claims-based and occurrence policies and which ones are most locums opportunities uh, providing you when they when they cover malpractice. Michelle, you want to take this one? Yeah, most of uh, mine are claims-based. Um, and uh, I'm not a legal expert. I should probably talk to my better half, who's a healthcare attorney. But uh, I am not familiar enough to know um, which one has advantages over the other. Right. So I, I'd advise all the listeners to go and uh, simply Google claims-based versus occurrence-based policies, read up on them a bit, 
with certain types, you will not need a tail coverage because um, it is on a per case basis, which is covered forever. And on another type of policy, it will be covered only up until the time that you are employed under that coverage. And then you will need tail coverage after that. So I advise everybody to read up on this, speak to their, you know, to, to the lawyers who they are using to, um, you know, evaluate contracts. And until they have a good understanding of these, please don't just take our advice and, uh, yeah. and, and, and read up on this yourself. Okay. So, you know, I want to talk a bit about my uh, locums experience uh, as far as finding opportunities. So um, the, the main group that I do locums for uh, is actually my first employer, my first W-2 employer. It's a, I live in Chicago, um, which is right on the border with Indiana. Um, and I covered five hospitals in Northwest Indiana. As my wife and I started growing our family, um, we now have two children. Um, you know, we, we learned early on that it just wasn't going to work with the commute to cover all of these hospitals uh, a little further outside of Chicagoland, uh, where, where my wife is a subspecialist. So I have maintained a good relationship with the practice director at these institutions. And regionally, this group is under the larger private equity group that owns uh, my current practice as well and manages my current practice as well. So it's been an easy transition as far as maintaining my licensure, maintaining my malpractice coverage to provide them very frequent weekend coverage as they've had some difficulty filling in IR spots uh, historically o over the past half decade, essentially since uh, since I left and a little bit before. It's been a very fruitful relationship. I already had a ton of contacts. Uh, I knew all the physicians there. They all knew me. The The staff and the schedulers were very happy to see me back on the schedule. Um, so I do this about three to four weeks a year, um, as well as multiple additional weekends out of the year. The thing is that that these relationships with old employers, um, you know, employers that you didn't take opportunities from in the past, um, they can come back in ways that are very beneficial in the future. And, you know, just a word of advice to people out there to really not burn bridges um, with, you know, with with anybody out there. It's uh, it's a very small world. I are, you know, local markets are small, but even the national even the national um, players they know us. There, there are only so many interventional radiologists out there, and uh, you know, once people know your reputation, they, you know, it, it sort of sticks. So, a bit about reimbursement. We're, we're not going to get too heavy into the finances, guys, but I want to talk a bit about the different models of compensation that you've seen in the locums world. Um, Vishal, can you talk about this? Is this productivity based? Is it a flat fee, or is it less structured um, than these types of payment models? Yeah, so I've been familiar with at least three different types, uh, and um, I have only done two. Uh, my guess is Covey might be able to talk more about productivity-based compensation. I typically have built two types of contracts. One where I just bundle everything together. I tell them this is my flat rate for the week. Everything's built in. My call coverage, call back, all of that stuff. Some clients like that. And other clients, I do what you described as a destructured compensation model where I break it down into a daily rate, which is, you know, basically your regular daytime work, a call rate to take call overnight, and then um, an additional amount uh, if uh, you get called back in or have to stay late for whatever reason, you know, some type of overtime rate. Most of the locums agencies or the headhunters, as we call them earlier, they do this destructured model. So it's pretty natural for most of my clients to continue that. But I have on occasion, particularly with private practices, done a uh, completely bundled rate where the daily rate and the call and the call back all gets bundled in. And I've even done a couple where I just do it for the full week. Uh, it's just a flat rate for the entire week. 
Yeah, that's interesting. So, uh, so I actually do the opposite. I, I I've done um, all of my contracts as destructured. Um, I found that the uh, that it's very highly variable how much time you're spending. Um, yeah. Getting called in overnight. Every hospital is a bit different. You know, I, I cover some level one trauma centers where I'm, I'm I'm basically spending the whole day in the hospital plus all nights, and I feel like I I need to be compensated as such. Yeah. And then I, and then I uh, you know I find some weekend coverages where I'm barely getting called in. And, and and I'll do that as as more of a uh, as more of a, a daily plus call in um, because I may be traveling quite a bit to get out to the sites. I don't think there's a wrong way personally. I mean, you know, I, I know I'm the host, but I'm, I'm I'm opining a bit here. I don't think there's a wrong way. Uh, how about you, Covey? Uh, do, do you find one way in particular? I'm sure the OBL works in a completely different model here. Yeah, the OBL is is very different. I you know speaking to that, I think the most common uh, payment um, plan in an OBL for locums work is a daily rate. So it's something that, you know, you negotiate. Daily rates tend to be higher for centers that do, quote unquote, higher end cases, uh, i.e. cases that just pay more. Right. So things like embolizations and PAD work, you can make a lot more in those centers. Dialysis access cases, uh, particularly in ASCs um, or even OBLs, um, you know, the payment's not as great, tends to be a little lower. I've done some production based work before, namely payment by CPT code. So billing specifically for ultrasounds read in terms of vascular studies or patients seen in terms of clinical consultations or cases performed, um, atherectomies, embolizations, vein ablations, dialysis access cases. I think there's pros and cons to both. I think one thing to keep in mind in the OBL space is oftentimes you're covering for someone's vacation. And typically speaking, um, there may be other staff who also take vacation and schedules tend to be a little lighter, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is particularly true in physician owned and operated OBLs where you have one person who is pr pretty much runs the show and that's their name and reputation on the line. Um, they tend not to stack cases for, you know, on that week um, for that reason. So if you do a production-based model, you got to be careful because you may not be doing a whole lot, right? So I've noticed yeah. in those situations, it's just better to have a flat rate. There are other settings, um, dialysis access centers in particular, or, um, you know, even corporate-owned OBLs where, I mean, they just want to maximize profit, you know? So they're going to want to keep their lab as busy as possible. And those are settings where maybe you would be better off on a production-based platform, if you will. I think it's important if you get into the OBL world doing locums, you need to know what reimbursements are. Okay, you need to know, you know, what factors influence reimbursements for the types of cases you do, how you do a case. I think that's important. You also have to know how individual physicians are paid in the OBL. And typically you can't do so unless you know what that reimbursement is. Um, a lot of centers tend to cap physician payment about 15 to 20 percent of total collections. Um, that's not necessarily true for independently owned and operated OBLs who, in my experience, will pay you a little bit more. And then, of course, you know, this this could be an entire conversation onto itself, but you speak with any lawyer about what a physician should be paid in this setting and you'll get different uh, rationales uh, for for or against uh, compensation caps. And I'm happy to talk with any anybody about that offline um, in terms of hospital work that I do. I think I think like you, Shama, and think like you, Vishal, uh, at least in certain settings is I've done a, a destructured de rate, a daily rate. I think one thing that I learned um, is oftentimes daily rates are from zero to eight hours. So that's something to keep mm -hmm. in mind. Any work above eight hours, you should get paid at a, at a uh, you know, callback rate, if you will. I think, you know, I don't know of any IRs out there only working eight hours a day, yeah. <laughs> especially in hospital <laughs> settings. 
I've, I've certainly, being in a level one trauma center, I've, I've had my days where I've been there for 20 out of 24 hours. So you want to make sure you're being compensated. The other thing too, to keep in mind for hospital-based coverage, obviously doesn't apply to the OBL is weekend rates. Okay. You want to make sure that's your time. And mm. I think oftentimes in negotiations, weekend rates tend to be a little lower. And the rationale for that is, well, you're not doing as many cases. Well, that may or may not be true. But I think one thing for sure is that hospital can't run and operate efficiently unless you're there. The ability to drain abscesses and stop bleeds and do the wonderful things that we do. So you have to make sure you advocate for yourself and make sure you're paid appropriately. Yeah, I've definitely found that uh, motorcycle accidents occur more on Saturdays and Sundays than they do Monday to Friday. So uh, we're certainly getting called in just as much on the weekend for for, for trauma as we are um, on the weekdays. That's, these are great points. Um, I hope uh, the people at home are taking notes because these are really, really important points uh, for people trying to get into the locums game. Since you were opining, Shemith, just to just add my overall opinion, you know, there's a definite information asymmetry in terms mm -hmm. of what the client has and for work and what you may believe that they have. So in general, I always start with a destructured contract. And then as I become more familiar with the client, I can offer them something else if they want. So for example, what Covey was saying was absolutely true. You know, the locums agencies typically treat the workday as an eight hour workday. Of course, we all know that it's never that way. For most of my clients who I negotiate with directly now, um, I pretty much give them a rate that's reflective of eight to five which is nine hours of work yeah. because that's really way more typical for a normal IR person. Uh, and that's actually a source of frustration for a lot of my clients where maybe they're new to having the need for a locums doctor and they end up getting the bill and they end up getting surprised because the agency was not familiar, did familiarize them with the fact that it would be an eight hour work day you know, and, and that most of them who are working say 7.30 to five or eight to five are gonna be adding an hour or an hour and a half of overtime. I just feel like that, um, that level of frustration is just not worth it. Just be open with the client. And it's one of the frustrations that I have with locums agencies is they do not tell their clients this. And right. they end up just getting sh you know shocked by the sticker price when the bill comes in. Yeah, I mean, uh, interestingly, I, so I've only worked in, in the Chicagoland area, you know, Northwest Indiana, you know, out to sort of the South Bend area um, near Michigan and, and here in Chicagoland. You know, Vishal, you have a lot more experiences across many states. So how do you determine what the market rate is? I mean, do you have a set number that you give to every client regardless of location, whether that's in a major metropolitan area or just outside versus very rural, you know, hours away from the nearest airport? Do you have a set rate? Do you have a set weekly rate? Or are you just using your best guess to, uh, to, to determine a rate? Yeah. So of course I do this full time. And so I have a big roster of clients. And like Covey was saying, it's very important at least for me, at least, to not approach this with what I think they can afford, but more with uh, what my time is worth. So um, I would sort of take Kavi's thought process in and pretty much extend it to the entire week for me, which is um, I have enough clients now to where if you can't offer it, well, I know somebody else will, so I'll just work there. Um, and I tend to approach it that way. So I, I typically have just a set rate for everybody and I, I'll deviate a little bit away from there. But I, I, to answer your question, I, I generally do not factor in the client's, say, desperation or lack of desperation or profitability or lack of profitability into uh, what I offer them. I have the luxury of doing that because I have so many clients that I can just go work somewhere else. The only time that I do charge a premium is when somebody is coming to me with close-in work. So we're talking one week, two weeks, three weeks before they need me. Um, I, I usually... Uh, charge, you know, 150% of my normal rate, because uh, that's really quite last minute uh, compared to even just a month of notice. Also, 
most of the contracts that I write and many of the contracts that I think that many of the agencies work on, they work in a 30-day clause system. So if someone's trying to bring you on in less than 30 days, there's really no exit clause for anybody, yourself included. So I feel like it's fair to charge um, a little more. That's how I approach it. But I don't generally tailor my rates to the practice. I tailor them to what I think my time is worth. Okay. Super interesting. Kavi, anything to add there? I think that's great. I, I think what Vishal is saying is we all need to advocate for ourselves. You know, I think I think that's what's so awesome about locums and maybe something we'll transition to here shortly is kind of some of the philosophical topics and, and the fact that it really puts power in the physician's hands. I, I think so. And, you know, it's, it's super important. I think for me, it's been uh, a key to not feeling like a cog in a wheel, if you will. And I think being able to be strong in, in you know, your opinion of your worth and communicating that to clients, offering good service and backing it up. It's wonderful. So this idea, Covey, um, is that you're essentially setting your own market. You are assigning your own value and seeing who's willing to pay that value to a degree. I mean, just kind of piggybacking on what uh, on what Vishal was saying a minute ago. He's setting a rate and he's saying this is what my time is worth, and he's and he's finding clients that way. Is is that a bit about what you mean by what you just said? Definitely. I think you have to you know know what your time is worth, have a number in mind. But I think kind of what Vishal alluded to, too, is he's able to do that because he's created leverage. He has a roster full of clients. So if one doesn't work out, he can go to another one. I think that's important that any physician doing locums does. I think, you know, I could speak for myself. You know, if I have a client that doesn't pay me what I feel like my time is worth, well, that's fine. I have other things I can do with my time that'll that'll pay me that number. And I've kind of started to create that for myself. I know Vishal's been doing this pretty much from the jump since fellowship. I was kind of, I was a little later to this being, being four years out. Now I just started this nine months ago, but I found that to be essential. I think having, creating that leverage and having that so you can say no to situations that really don't, you know, don't meet what you're looking for. Can I just add to this statement, which is I try not to undercut other interventional radiologists. I feel like that's just in no one's benefit. And, and, and similarly, particularly with my private practice colleagues, you know, I, or even corporate for that matter, when I offer a rate and they say, well, that's quite a bit of money, we would probably just cover it ourselves. Then I say, that's great. You should do that. I'm not here for the group to make money on my back. I'm here because you need coverage because you're exhausted or don't have the call coverage you want. But if somebody in-house can do it for even one cent cheaper than me, then you should offer it to that person. I'm not here to undercut uh, your own uh, employees or your own partners. Sure. And it's, it's, it's a different life entirely. I mean, you know, you're on the road, you're flying in, you don't have a home established there. Your family and friends aren't there. You know, I, I've, I've certainly heard that from certain um, locums providers. And I, I just stopped the conversation there, to be honest yeah. with you, in, in those kind of negotiations, because you really want to help a practice and you want to become yeah. a part of the practice even if it's just for a short while, I mean, I don't come into a locum's job ever being anybody other than myself. And it's clear that, you know, neither of you do either. You're clearly not there to put on airs. You know, you are there to provide a very important service and to prevent their own physicians from burning out. Um, I have been thanked so many times just offering four or five days sometimes for guys who cannot get people to join their practice, um, despite being fantastic practices. And providing four days of really high-end good work. I mean, do, do you guys have similar experiences? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think that's one of the things that draws me to this is I'm not taken for granted. I'm appreciated everywhere that I go because I am serving what is a critical role. They often did not have an alternative. And it really does put that pep in your step and allows you to walk in 
knowing that you are valuable. And I, I think it really does translate into how you interact with your patients, how you interact with the staff there when you know that you're wanted and appreciated. I know that sounds kind of uh, emotional or, or poetic, but I, I think it makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I definitely agree too. I think it's definitely changed my early part of my career for, for the better. Uh, I think yeah. far less burned out, even though I'm traveling so much, I'm busy, but it's very satisfying knowing that you're, you're meeting a need and people are grateful for that. Since we're on the topic of finances, can I just add two, two additional points? Uh, number one, I forgot to mention this. This is sort of related to taxes. You do have to figure out, at least the way that I approach it, if I earn money in a state, that's money that I earned in that state, even though my corporation is incorporated elsewhere. So uh, some states have uh, income uh, taxes and some states don't. So I don't generally let that factor into who I work for or what rates I charge, but it does have some implications down the road uh, because point. you will have to pay state taxes if you earned income in that state. Now, that's my accountant's opinion. I, I think that there may be some differing opinions depending on who you speak to about what really counts as income in that state, but that's been the opinion of of my accountant and the way that I've done my accounting so far. And then number two, I, I do want to uh, backtrack a little bit about what I said earlier about me quoting a rate that I think reflects what I believe my time is worth. I, I would say actually probably the best way to approach this is to offer a rate that is reflective of what you think your time is worth or how much they're making off of you, whichever one is the greater. And I don't think that many of us, particularly out of training, have a very good sense for what is being generated in terms of revenue. Like Covey, I would imagine, has a very intimate knowledge because not only does he do locums in the OBL space, he worked in the OBL space. Um, and I have made a very, very strong point, and I would advocate anyone in training or even nearly out of training, go look up all these CPT codes that you're billing for, go figure out how many RVUs they're generating, because if you don't know uh, what you're making, you are, you have the, the, again, going back to the word that I was talking about, the information asymmetry is tremendous. So uh, you have to educate yourself on these topics. And so I would offer a rate that I think is what my time is worth, or if it happens to be more, uh, the amount uh, that I'm generating in revenue, whichever is the greater of the two. I often do what my, I think I, my time is worth because I know that information. Mm -hmm. I don't often know exactly what the volume is going to be, say, for a new client. I want to add, on, add to that a little bit. Um, so I would add that even if you're not doing the higher generating cases, um, if you are positioned in a place where you're also working with another doc and you're able to pick up the smaller cases mm -hmm. so that they can do the higher revenue generating cases, you're still adding quite a bit of value because you don't want them, you know, stepping out of their Y90 to have to go stick a para. You, you know, that's what you're there for. You're providing that value. And that Y that Y ninety's got enough reimbursement to go around for you know the whole department and 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 a lot more and you know at the end of the day this isn't just about money which I, I know it's not for y'all either it really is about providing a value that is that that is otherwise not there in the hospital I I read a very interesting Facebook group um, post in a very uh, in, in a very well known IR doctors uh, Facebook group where someone did a a consulting gig for a hospital and. IR was not in-house for six months and the hospital shut down. They were unable to recruit for six months and the hospital shut down. I've heard that more than a handful of times. It's interesting. It's interesting as to how we assign value and as we assign ownership and who we work for. So I want to kind of close out the session with you guys giving your, uh, your opinions on just these themes about ownership, kind of fulfilling your own destiny and 
like who who is it that we as interventional radiologists work for in quotes I have some very strong opinions on this matter i'm sure vishal does as well so it should be entertaining um you know i had no idea about business ownership at all going going into into my career i think i was very much just along the path of you know just be a good student be a good resident be a good fellow get a good job build a practice and just do great work and there's nothing wrong with that but i think one thing i learned pretty quickly is that we have to be attuned to the finances of medicine because i think we exist in a structure that often uses our moral obligation to patients to take advantage of us okay and that's a very strong statement but it's one that one that i believe i think for me I became happiest when I practice independently and pretty much fulfill my own destiny. I think I learned that very early on when I realized that I could not build the practice I wanted in the setting that I was in. So I had to move to a different setting. I learned in that setting when I was able to build that practice that I like, still not happy because I wasn't able to call all the shots. I was a minority owner. Okay. There was definitely some misalignment uh, between, between the owners of this practice. What Locums has taught me is that I am most fulfilled personally when I'm able to call my own shots. And I think that's what's great about locums. I think you learn a lot about yourself and I think you have the ability to pretty much practice as your own business entity. You're, you're your own, own person. You can control your own destiny. I, I think that's wonderful. I think we have ownership of our domains. I think every physician should have ownership of their domain, whether or not that means they're an independent contractor or business owner or even employee. I think we all have to be independently minded. And I think one thing for sure is locums helps facilitate that. Yeah, I, I obviously have strong thoughts and opinions on this matter as well. And I think if there's one thing that the listeners can walk away with is that people like Covey and I, and even you, Shamit, and I'm sure plenty of other people uh, who do this around the country, the lines between locums and permanent, the lines between W2 and 1099, uh, these are very blurred lines and stigma and all aside, you really have to educate yourself about all the different practice patterns and, and relationships that exist and then choose the one that works best for you. I also very strongly believe that, you know, um, I have an MD, a doctorate in medicine. So that's a doctoral level degree. I'm supposed to be able to do pretty much anything in medicine because my primary education is in that. And then on top of that, you know, I'm a licensed physician. So I think it really behooves doctors to know everything up and down the chain of their field, including things as simple as getting an IV into a patient all the way up to the, the corporate and the business side of medicine in terms of how we get paid. And then of course, all the medicine that happens in between. And I do feel that um, the training in, in, in residency and fellowship really leaves people coming out of training with very little information. And I don't know what to do about that because there's just so much medical information that needs to be transmitted during those critical years of training. But uh, if you don't learn this stuff, somebody else will learn it for you and uh, put yourself in a really bad position. So I, I, I very strongly believe that uh, what's happening in the locums market is really just a reflection of what is happening in the overall interventional radiology market. I'm super excited to see what this new DRIR pathway is going to provide our field in terms of what they're going to be looking to do when they come out of training. And I think that the hotness of the, the locums market is a reflection of changing structure within the way that interventional radiology has been practiced right now. I can't help but wonder, and now I'm getting a little bit off the beaten path here, but can't help but wonder if the amount that's being paid for locums coverage and in interventional radiology may force some of the powerful entities that are involved in healthcare to go advocate for high reimbursement 
for some of the things that we do that we know are just under reimbursed. Um, we're being under reimbursed for a variety of reasons, including things that we've done to ourselves in our field. But I can't help but wonder if uh, something like that could happen. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but boy, if it does happen, I'm going to claim that I said it first here on this podcast. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm really curious what, what, what will happen moving forward. Very interesting. This has been fascinating, guys. I think that this is going to be very well received. Um, I'm sure that your emails and your 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 Twitters and your your inboxes are just going to be filling up here with with questions of of interested people. So, is there anything that either of you would like to promote? Any like personal or business accounts that you that you'd like to promote? So, I have a blog. I think maybe a lot of people listening to this have have um, heard about it, or maybe not. But it's LineMonkeyMD.com. I've been writing really as a form of therapy ever since 2019 when I, when I got into my first job and I was pretty unhappy with it. And the blog has kind of taken on a life of its own. I talk about a lot of topics uh, related to interventional radiology, a uh, huge emphasis on the OBL space. I'm an advocate for physician ownership. I want to see more business owners in medicine, physician business owners. I want to see more independently minded IRs. Uh, I want to see a future of clinical IR. I think that's something that, that I talk about a lot on the blog. Um, I hope it's a valuable resource. Uh, it's allowed me to connect with a lot of people. I'm on Twitter, um, at LineMonkeyMD. It's an easy way to, to uh, contact me or simply my first name dot last name at gmail.com. I don't have anything specific to promote. I have thought about that. Actually, Covey's inspirational to me. I probably need to do something in the social sphere because uh, I think a lot of people are interested in the kind of work that I do and the traveling that I do, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure my personal information will be conveyed through the Backtable podcast. Uh, I'll give them some appropriate uh, email addresses and uh, Twitter and social media accounts, but uh, nothing specific to promote. Awesome. Thanks, guys. But Line Monkey, I've been to, is phenomenal. I've read a few of the articles. <laughs> They're really good. Else. Great Appreciate job, it. Yeah. I, I really want to thank you guys again. I'm sure the listeners will be really happy you guys were on. I'm sure everybody learned a lot. I, I know I did. Just want to remind everyone, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify. And once again, just thanks, guys. Uh, it's great having you on. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-host Chris Beck. Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhirter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.